Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 1. We actually have two readings today, but if you stay in Matthew 1, I can read from Galatians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a, the seat Bible in front of you, and you would turn to page 678. It's actually the first page of the New Testament, so you'll see in those Bibles, you'll see a blank page to your left, Matthew's Gospel, the beginning of it, to your right. Now, we had said that this Sunday of Advent is, is themed by hope. I'm going to read to you a genealogy of Jesus. I'm going to read a lot of names. And it's purposeful. Um, it's from the Bible, one. It's right to read the Bible out loud, too. But I think as we read the names and listen to the sermon, I think it'll all make sense. So it'll be a little tedious, but bear with me. It, it, like I said, it is the scriptures. It's there purposely as we'll find out, uh, Lord willing, this morning. Okay. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abadab, and that guy, the father of Nashan, Nashan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon... Koni was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abud, Abud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadar the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliu, Eliu the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Christ, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. And then the reading from Galatians 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Amen. That is the word of God. Thank you for your patience through all those names. Let's pray and ask God for this much-needed help. Father, thank you for the privileges of grace. We just experienced some of it now by singing out loud songs to you. If it wasn't for grace, God, we'd have no reason to hope. And frankly, God, I, we wouldn't be alive. So we want to thank you then for Jesus. We want to thank you for his coming, his dying, 
the promise of his return. Thank you that when we open our Bibles, we find him there. So we've read about Jesus and we've sung about Jesus. We've prayed to you in his name, and now he's going to be preached. And in that, God, you know, I know, my need is great. Nothing will be of lasting value unless you give me help. So I would humbly ask that you would please give me help. Help me to preach and help us all to firmly listen, to understand, and believe. Now, all the things, God, that I've asked of you, none of it is beyond your power. And every one of them is keeping with your promises. You love us. And because you love us, we look to you now for everything. And it is for Jesus' sake that we ask these things. Amen. If you have a worship folder, on the very back, you'll see the title of the sermon, What is Our Only Hope in Life and in Death? Now, that sentence, which comes in a form of a question, I think might be the single greatest sentence ever written outside a sentence from the Bible. Right? What is our only hope in life and death? Let's so think of it this way. We, we do life, and we live it, and we know that everyone in this room knows that there are parts of life that can be extremely hard extremely frightening, terrifically disappointing, and no one, no one in this room and no one outside this room is immune to that reality. And when those moments come, we may turn inward and we try to find some inner strength. We may turn outward. We look to friends and family to give us help, which is good. Some people turn to religion. Some people turn, admittedly, to crystals and beads or psychics. Some turn to money to give them hope. Some, they increase their intellect, some pleasure and passion, some kind of passion, you know, to kind of excite us, to energize us, and at the very least, give us the feeling of hope. Maybe not the reality of hope, but the feeling of hope. But we know, and we have to be honest, those things are not enough. They do not last. I mean, can they sew things up a little bit? Absolutely, they can sew things up a little bit, but the seam will eventually burst. And we know this. And then there's death, right? What is our only hope in life and in death? Okay? Death. Because death comes for everyone. Now, if you think of it, the word hope in the world always means maybe. It's pretty much the best it can do. I hope I can do this or I hope I can do that. But hope in the Bible is not a maybe. It's a certainty. Now, with that... What is our only hope in life and death? Question, I want to tell you that that question doesn't come from my mind. It comes from two catechisms. It comes from the New City Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism. And, and Heidelberg Catechism and New City Catechism, basically all they are doing is they try to teach us the Bible in a kind of systematic question and answer way. I've always used catechisms because they help me, which is probably why I drew from the question. The New Catechism is really new. The Heidelberg Catechism is very old. But here's the thing. They both gather water, if you would, from the same well for their answer. And that well is the Bible. And in these two catechisms, question and answer, the very first thing they do is they take us to Jesus. For example, here's one of the answers to the question from the catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? That I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So you see, they take us right to Jesus, right off the bat. And if you look down in your Bible, that's exactly what Matthew's gospel does. We read it and write the opening line. Who do we find? It takes us right to Jesus. And here's the thing. 
If you're prepared to say Jesus is our only, uh, only, right? Only, there's no one else, there's nothing else. He's our only hope in life and in death. You better be able to back it up. I mean, we're talking about people's lives here. We're talking about life, yeah, but we're also talking about death. So when you say something like our only hope in life and death, you better come with some real meaty stuff. So as you read through Matthew's gospel, he'll say that Jesus is God's only son. He'll say that Jesus was sent to die for our sins on the cross. And he'll say things like at least give the idea that no one else can do that for you. It's the only avenue that God has given us. So if you're going to get safely past death and you're going to get cared for perfectly in this earth in the meantime, he's the only one. Now that is a very narrow statement. Only one person, Jesus, is the key to everything. And who can you say that about? So again, you better be able to back it up. And so what God does then, because you know God's the divine author of the Bible, Matthew's gospel backs it up in many different ways. And here is one way that he does it in this genealogy, in which it takes us to our first point, Matthew's gospel. Okay, what is a gospel? So you look down there, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, the word gospel means good news. Literally means it's good to tell and it's good to hear. That's a literal translation. Therefore, a gospel is a good message that you tell and a good message that you hear. The second thing, the Gospels in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, Gospels were written really soon after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And they were written in a way to get people to come to Jesus and say, yes, okay, I've read this Gospel. I am convinced that he is truly our only hope in life and in death. It's, in some ways, it was kind of like a profile-raising material for Jesus through letters, through, through Gospels. Now, you know and I know that the typical line of thinking is when, you're, you know, when you begin a book or you want to get lots of people interested in a book or in something, one of the best ways to do it is to start off with really, you know, really kind of a terrific sentence or two, a, a real attention grabber. Okay, so look at that genealogy. <laughs> Here's, here's one example. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. I mean, I am reading that book, right? That, everybody knows that. It's like, like, I'm reading that book. Here's another one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, right? Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens. How about this one? This is a great one. It was a pleasure to burn. That's Fahrenheit 451. That's the very first sentence of the book. Here, here's a good one. It is a truly universally acknowledged fact that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. That's Pride and Prejudice, right? Jane Austen. Okay, here's an easy one for all of us. Once upon a time, there was an old mother pig who had three little pigs and not enough food to feed them. So when they were old enough, she sent them out into the world to seek their fortune. <laughs> that, that was the three little pigs. By the way, that story was written in 1886. So, okay, we know that those kind of opening lines are like tremendously effective. I looked at some of your faces. You were like, you knew, you knew those opening lines. They get our attention and they keep us in the book. But when you read the opening line of what I just read from Matthew's gospel, okay, on the human level, because I want to be very, very careful, okay, 
on the human level, you're like, Matthew, do you write love letters to your wife with that pen? I mean, that's, you know, look at it. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the father. I read that because I was hoping you would feel that, the father of the father of the father. I was like, when is he going to stop? <laughs> but here's the thing. This is given to us. It's not for our entertainment. It's for our rescue. It's for our eternal destiny. So the first thing you do is when you see that, it's head language. This is for the mind first. He's not reaching for the heart. Not yet. He's reaching for the head. He's like, I want you guys to think. Second, at the very beginning of the proclamation of the gospel, we see that this coming of Jesus Christ, you see this long lineage of people, that is something totally different from the first century world. I mean, think of ancient mythology and other religions around at that day. And only in the Christian faith, okay, this is for the mind, only in the Christian faith do we find a Messiah, a Savior, that's completely involved in large chunks of time and public outworking in history. Now, think of it this way. For the Greeks, which around the time that Jesus lived, you had Zeus, you had Apollos, you had Hermes, and you had Athena. But nothing about them related to time and history. I mean, they were myths. So, for example, this is, the, this is the story of the birth of Athena. She is born suddenly out of the head of Zeus. So, she has no genealogy. She has no long history. You couldn't track her movements. She didn't make any promises as you could Jesus. No one said, you know, I saw Athena do this or I saw Athena do that. It was, it was ethereal. It was, it was mystic, shadowy. And it was all outside of history. And so, what do you have now? Do you know anyone on this planet who believes in Athena? (laughs) But it's the same for our day. If someone says something like, well, I like to think of God as, or I like to think of Jesus as, and they fall on their own, own authority, and it's different from what we're told from the scriptures, basically all they can say, it's basically one generation and one single person. There's no record. There's no history. It's just now. But here's the thing. When you read the Gospel of Matthew and you read about Christ, we read about everything he said, everything he did, and he's not talking about something that suddenly explodes onto human history. But it's something that God promised centuries and centuries before it ever came to pass. So if you look down in your Bible there at the opening chapter of Matthew, what you find there is is an incredibly long view of history. All those names that precede the actual coming of Jesus Christ, that is human history unfolding. And that's important as Christians, because why? Because we're we're still waiting for the second advent, for the second coming of Christ. And what do we know? Well, gosh, it's been a long, long time. And people say we've been waiting and we've been waiting for his return and nothing. Okay, and then some say, well, maybe it is a myth. Maybe he's not returning, right? It's the same thing that people said about the first advent. Maybe the Messiah will never come. They read the scripture. They knew the promise was there, but it had been waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah to come generation after generation after generation, but nothing until he comes. So that's why some say this is all a myth. It, it, it has nothing to do with, with time or history, it's, it's, it, but it does. 
This is not ooey, gooey, religious sugar, you know, to keep people nice, to keep people soft, and to keep people in check. Matthew says, this is the gospel, this is good news, and he begins to set the stage, if you would, to let people know. He's going to teach people who Jesus is and what he's done and why Jesus has a long history and why he is your only hope in life and death right? Only Jesus. So no, no other person, no other addition, no other religion, no list of do's and don'ts, no outlook, no frame of mind, no meditative state, or any other thing, anywhere is your only hope. And right off the bat, right, the quintessential question, okay, why am I here? Where am I going? Is there something really after death? Matthew, under God, goes right to the mind and gives us a good news answer. That's number one. What is the gospel? It is truth. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. Number two, why the long list? And you see it there, right? Well, you can see what he does. He crams basically about 2,000 years of history into 16 verses. What's that? That's like a little over 100 years of verse. 42 generations of people are listed there with those names that Matthew gives us. And it's called the genealogy. Some of the Bibles have a subheading, the genealogy of Jesus. And then you see where he says, genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. Now let's just think, why did he begin that way? All right, because, you know, the Bible teaches that Jesus is divine. He is God in flesh. Well, why not start, start there? Well, another gospel does. Well, first of all, most of Matthew's original readers would have been Jewish. And most of them would have known about David, right? He was Israel's greatest king. Now, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you see that name, you're going to know two things. I bet you everyone in this room knows the story of David and Goliath and the story of what? You can just say it if you want, David and Bathsheba. But here, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the legal heir to the David and Goliath and the David and Bathsheba. And what that means is, God made David a promise. When David began his kingship, God made a covenant agreement with him. And so in that covenant, God promised David that out of David's earthly line, his family tree, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be born. Even on his deathbed, listen to David. He's confessing the fact that he knows God's going to keep his promise. 2 Samuel 23. He has made with me, God has made with me an everlasting covenant covenant ordered in all things and it is secure in other words david is saying god keeps his promises right now stay with me god made a promise to david and matthew's showing us that in the coming of christ after all those years god kept his promise god gave david that promise about 900 years before the birth of christ that's almost a century and you see that's important because there were times in israel's history that it seemed like God forgot the promise. It also often seemed like God was going to destroy the promise. You know, like a parent losing your temper, you know, no ice cream, no Netflix, go to bed now. It seemed like that's the way God was treating his people. And God's people felt that God had shut them out of the promise and he was just leaving them there, that Babylonian exile that we talked about or read about. Hence this list, this genealogy, this tracking of Jesus' earthly line because it shows that, you know what, God was keeping his promise all the time from beginning to end. It didn't matter how dark it got. 
or it really didn't matter how good things were. In fact, do you see the second name there, the son of Abraham? That goes back even further than David, about 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. So God's people did some terrible things, and we'll see that in a moment. And God's people kept doing terrible things, and in that way, they were just like you and I. We can do the same. And because of the bad things, sometimes bad things happen, right? Sometimes we get lost. But here's the thing. The genealogy shows us God never gets lost. We get confused about our circumstances. God never is. Things take so long with God sometimes. <laughs> He's right on time. You may doubt his purpose. You may doubt his promise. God knows what he's doing. And he always keeps his word. His promises never fail. We fail. Absolutely. He doesn't fail. This is the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. That is why through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In other words, everything that God promised, it can't, because, it can't be because of us. It has to be because of Jesus. Do we enjoy all those promises? Absolutely. Are they because of us? Absolutely not. The promises are in Christ. Therefore, they are not. And we should thank God for this. They are not dependent on us. So God may seem so slow, but he's always moving at the speed of God. And the speed of God is the right speed. It's never late, always on time, and his timing is perfect. Remember what we read from Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, some translation, at just the right time. At just the right time, God sent his son. And before we get to the next point, just think about this. Every one of us in this room, trillions of moments leading up to this moment, to bring us together, that we all might be convinced together that Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. All right, number one, what is the gospel? Good news. Well, number two, why the long list? Because Jesus has a long history, a long history of keeping his promise. Number three, who are all these people? Well, you look at them, and the first thing we should know, they are deeply flawed people. They were all sinners, some are worse than others on the list, but they, were, they did some terrible things. These people did some terrible things to themselves and to other people. And they are part of the earthly line of Jesus. So think of it this way. When you say a person's name that you know, typically it brings some kind of thought or a feeling, right? So look at verse 2. Abraham, you read your Bible, Abraham was a liar. He dehumanized his wife at least twice. He was awfully cruel to other people. David, okay, yeah, David did some good things, but David slept with another man's wife. And he had that man murdered. This is the list. Uzziah, verse 9. Uzziah, God made it so everything that Uzziah did, he, it, it prospered. Uzziah literally had the golden touch. But as time went on, Uzziah thought it wasn't God, it was all him. He was filled with pride. Again, he did some terrible wrong things when it came to the worship of God. Verse 10, this is on the list. Manasseh, Manasseh, you read your Bible, he sacrificed his own children, his two sons on an altar, and he practiced necromancy. Ugh. Sinners, okay? I could go on, but I'm going to stop there. And yet every one of those names 
are part of the family of Jesus, the earthly line of Jesus. Now, I want you to think of it like this. Let's say you decide to go on Ancestry.com or FindMyPast.com. You log in and you do your digging, you're answering the questions, and you find out that your great, great, great uncle on your father's side was Adolf Hitler. How many people are you going to tell about that? Or what if you found out that your uncle was Matt Lauer? Remember him from a couple of years ago, a few years ago? Or what if you found out that you're related to Paul Pot? Most of us wouldn't want that written down for all time. But you see, in these names, it tells us that Jesus Christ understands completely what it means to have sin and shame in our family story. I mean, it's an open book, literally. So Jesus is telling us he didn't come in this world for squeaky clean people, squeaky clean people. There are no squeaky clean people. He comes into a fallen world, into a fallen family that has all kinds of blots and spots, and he goes public with it. And he did it out of love for us. And everything we learned about Jesus through this gospel proves that he's able to sympathize. And that's the point. He's able to sympathize with us. He understands. This is the Bible. Again, Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest. This is Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now here's the question you should ask. What does Jesus do with all his perfection? What does Jesus do with his sinless life? He lays it flat on the altar for our sin. That's the gospel. I mean, think of it like this. Can you, can you imagine hanging pictures on the walls of your home of all the terrible moments of your sin? Okay, when you were lying, you have a picture on your wall of that. Shouting out your spouse in rage, you have a picture of that. Gossiping, judging, you know, some immoral act, you have a picture on the wall of that. You know, open bottle, all liquored up, and you have a picture on the wall of that. Nobody does that. We do not hang pictures like that on our wall. What kind of pictures do we hang? You know, the pictures. Everything's great pictures. What's Jesus doing here? He's hanging it all on the wall, right? He's not hiding it in the basement. Perfect Savior who's made sin for us. And he's not ashamed to call all these people as bad as they were. And they were bad. He's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Because he knows he's going to soak up all the sin of everyone in his body when he goes to the cross and dies. Okay, why are all these people there? Well, they're sinners. But they're also outsiders. Would you look at your Bible? There's four women mentioned in the genealogy. Verse 3, Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab. Verse 5b, Ruth. And then verse 6, the mother of Solomon, who had been Uriah's wife. Well, why does that matter? And why is it there? Number one, those ladies were probably all not Israelites. It meant that they naturally did not belong to God's people. Secondly, they had huge spots, question marks at the very least, over their lives. Tamar gave birth to two twin sons, and she didn't give birth by way of her husband, but by way of her father-in-law, Judah. That's Genesis 38. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite. Okay, what does that mean? Well, Moabites had an embarrassing past, lots of sexual immorality at its worst in the Moabite people, and they were permanently barred from any kind of congregational worship 
in Israel. And then verse 6, Solomon's mother, that, that was Bathsheba. And you know what happened to her? Now, why does Matthew tell us these things? It's not because they're okay. They're not okay. He tells us these things. Or specifically, God wants us to know these things because whatever it is that causes you shame, because those are shameful things, whether it be sin or some kind of abuse that happened to you in the past or some kind of painful memory that you just cannot get out of your mind. You can't chase it out of your mind. They are there to tell us the Lord Jesus Christ understands. I mean, he was in the thick of it. And he does more than simply say, you know, they're there. No, he's experienced it all in some way. In fact, fully when he took on our sin at the cross. Right? That's Hebrews. He was made like us in every respect so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest. Therefore, as we read that, he sympathizes with us and our weakness. So Hebrews 2 says then we can be confident to get near to God and find mercy and find grace, not judgment and condemnation, but mercy and grace in our time of need. So you see, it was to save the kind of people who appear on the family tree of Jesus that Jesus came to save. So, so our sins, our shame, it's not bigger than God's grace because God's goodness towards you is never connected to your goodness. It's always connected to your sin. God's goodness towards you is not connected to your goodness. It's always connected to your sin. That's called grace. So out of this great mass of people from Jesus' family tree came the great Messiah. Right? The people who've done wrong, people who've been abused, mistreated, marginalized, the least of the least in some cases, they are not erased. They are named with Jesus Christ. Get it? They're not erased. Now, even as I think about that, are there people in our family heritage that we've just erased off our list because of some terrible thing they did? Jesus did not do that. He put them on the list. He hung them on the wall. Sinners, outsiders, broken. It reminds us that God's plans are bigger and better. And, and, they, and yeah, it's messy. Yeah, it's messy. But sin is messy. Now you think back to our question, what is our only hope in life and death? There are a whole lot of voices, maybe even your own voice, all, a, lot of, a lot of seductive things that say something other than, than Jesus. And they deny then the love of Jesus through his death on the cross is needed at all. Which takes us then to our final point. You see it there? How is Jesus our only hope? Well, let's just think through what we've said, okay? Basic Christianity says Jesus Christ came into this world, born into this world. He lived a perfect life on our behalf, died a horrible death as punishment again on our behalf, not for his sins and rebellion, but for our sins and rebellion. And, and there's plenty of that. And therefore, the only real hurdle a person, if you would, would have to jump over, maybe walk over is a better word. I'm just going to read it. Number one, they're going to have to be convinced that they're deeply flawed sinners who, who have no hope of self-fixing. Okay? have no hope of self-fixing. No matter how much they commit to do good, they can't be good enough for God on their own. 
That's the first thing. The second thing, they're going to have to believe there's no way in the world that you or I can live the kind of life that would warrant no need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. On our best day, there's no way in the world that we can live a kind of life where we wouldn't need Jesus. In other words, if Jesus came to take away sin, it must mean that there's sin to take away. And he's the only one that can. Which makes to the third thing that we're going to have to believe there's only one person who can do that. And it's who Matthew is writing about. It's Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ offers himself to honest people, not squeaky clean people, right? There's no such thing. He just offers himself to honest people, honest people who know that they can't come into God's presence and they can't become part of God's family on their own. They have no hope on their own, but their only hope in life and in death is Jesus. This is how I became a Christian. A long time ago, I said something like, I am really sorry. What, what you require, God, I can't give you. I need your help. I need Jesus. All right, let's end it before we take communion. This is, this is the full question and answer of the Heidelberg question. Uh, what is your only hope in life and death? We'll read this and we'll prepare for, for communion. What is your only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now ask yourself that question. What is your only hope in life and death? And see, see if your answer is Jesus. Because if it is, if it is, you're right with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you come to us in all kinds of ways through the scriptures to teach us about your son, about our sin, and about our need of a savior, even in a genealogy. <laughs> it's so simple. It could be quick, quick to pass over. But those names have value, and they have history, and they take us to Jesus Christ. So God, as we prepare for communion, we pray that we would glory in the cross put absolutely no confidence in our flesh, in our works, in ourself, and be settled in heart that Jesus Christ is truly our only hope in life and in death. Amen. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by this sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.